Okay, welcome everybody. This is Myth Busting here at Web Yeshiva with me, Uri Cohen, and we are up to our fourth session out of 13. A special, uh, special pre-Shavuot edition. I haven't labeled it uh, as such, but uh, uh, most of the topics uh, relate in can relate to Shavuot in some way, can be used as uh, as Dvar Torah uh, uh, at some point on Shavuot, either relating to uh, Shavuot itself or or the Torah or the uh, dairy or uh, Yom Tov. Uh, uh, it's not 100% Shavuot, but it's uh, it's mostly. So uh, let's uh, let's go right into. Well, I'll come back to that quote at the beginning. Um, brief look at at uh, at the topics, and uh, and let's get right into the urban legend. Urban legend. Everybody's heard this one, or at least everybody who's learned Gemara in a formal uh, class. Everybody knows that the Gemara starts with Daf Bet in order to teach us an important lesson. In case there's anybody here who uh, has not uh, heard this, just a quick uh, quick illustration. Talmud Bavli, standard edition of the Gemara, uh, originally from the uh, widow and brothers Rom, uh, and then reprinted, and then reprinted, and reprinted. Here's Brachot. Um, actually, this is maybe a bad example because this has an extra page, but uh, the the earlier editions just had the uh, the frontispiece, the standard standard page, and then here is the first page of of Gemara Brachot, and you see on the uh, on the top top left, there's a big letter Bet. That's tell you it's Daf Bet Amud Aleph, or two A, as they uh, as they say in English. So sooner or later, everybody asks, "Hey, why is the first page page two? Aside from that, that Daf is not a page; it's a folio, meaning it's double sided. But okay, um, so there was a uh, a podcast uh, last year. Uh, on the 1840 podcast, 1840 is the podcast of Rabbi David Bashevkin, uh, who is, among other things, the uh, the director of education of NCSY. He wrote a, a little book called Sin Agog, um, and uh, seen his stuff uh, various places, including Mishpacha magazine. He seems to have a good sense of humor, and he has a bunch of interesting interviews on uh, on this podcast. Uh, and this one was with Michelle Chesner, who is the librarian for Jewish studies at Columbia University. And uh, what, one thing that I like about this podcast uh, is that they have transcripts. I don't know about you, but I don't like listening to uh, to people talking. I like reading uh, instead, and I'm I'm very happy to read an entire transcript as opposed to spending what half an hour an hour listening to people talk i know there's different different approaches anyway i wish that all podcasts had transcripts in order to have that option so I, i'm pleased about that uh so in the middle of this discussion which was about uh the formatting of sacred jewish texts throughout history and how it's uh impact on religious judaism all sorts of aspects speaking with somebody who's studied the history of Jewish uh, manuscripts, printing, etc. Uh, 
it's pretty entertaining. Anyway, so so she said uh, the the reason that we talk talk about Daf Bet Amraalif uh, is because the way that the books were counted, this, this is you could tell this is an oral. Uh, it's not. It wasn't edited to to make it a completely. Uh, 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 written style. Uh, the way the books were counted, it was technically the second leaf, but the first leaf was the title page, meaning Daf Aleph was the frontispiece, the page with the fancy uh, the Sha'ar, the uh, the gate and uh, and curtains and uh, and lions. That's page one. So Rabbi Beshevkin's like, don't you dare! Like he senses where she's going. Uh, that is not what my Rebbe told me. And and then she explains Amudalif is what we would call in library language folio 2A or 2 recto, uh, as opposed to verso. One is the front, one is the back. And he says, you're crushing my childhood dreams right now. And she's, she says, this is all early print, meaning all early printed books where that's, that they all had that. The first page, the first folio is the title page. And the second folio is the, the the first page with the with the writing on it. Um, so he, I like the way he says, "Didn't you grow up with the Rebbe saying that Daf Aleph is midot in teaching other people correctly? Get it? Like Daf Aleph, the, like the very beginning. The beginning of learning is not learning itself, but it's being nice to people, which happens to be a nice idea, and it corresponds with." Uh, a uh, classic midrash, Derech Eretz Kadma Latora, which even though technically the midrash itself is referring to a historical process, everybody uh, uh, likes to point to that midrash to say, first you have to have good manners, first you have to be a decent person, and then you can keep mitzvot, then you can, you could, after you're a good person, then you could be a good Jew. Anyway, so that would, that's the way that Rabbi, Rabbi Bashevkin says that that's what, of course, that's what he was told. That's why. So um, Michelle Chesner says, I didn't grow up studying Gemara, so I missed that lesson. Um, he says, you just crushed my childhood dreams. Uh, uh, I am so sorry. I'm sure there were deeper spiritual reasons that these things happened. And he says, for sure, for sure. We'll, we'll come back to this point. But so he's repeating back there. So the standard reason that it starts on the second page is because all books really start on the second page. If you have a title page, that's it. That's the end of this uh, subject in their uh, in their discussion. Um, but I think that even though uh, she was trying to make him feel better, oh, I'm sure there are deeper spiritual reasons. But in fact, it's not crazy to say that because this goes back to. Uh, okay, fine. It's an urban legend. It's it's not true that that's why the Gemara starts with Daf Bed. We know why the Gemara starts with Daf Bed, just because that's the way all the early books were published. But getting back to our first page and the quote at the beginning, uh, is in a in a book uh, by Dr. Daniel Dennett, one of the uh, big names in uh, science versus religion, uh, and he's one of the anti anti-religion uh, anti people. But he has a paragraph or two on the different meanings of why. Uh, it's not that I like this book in particular, but I like the way he formulates it here. The English word is equivocal. The main ambiguity is marked by a familiar pair of substitute phrases. What for and how come? Why are you handing me your camera? Asks, what are you doing this for? Like, what, what's your purpose? Well, what's it leading to? As opposed to, why does ice float? That's how come. That's what is it about the way that ice forms that makes it lower density than uh, liquid water. So the how come question asks for a process narrative, 
meaning what leads to it? Why is it this way? What caused it to be this way? That explains the phenomenon without saying it's for anything. And then he takes it from there to uh, to all discussion about uh, if science can explain things, do you need religion, which I'm not especially interested in. But let me paraphrase this. Uh, there are two ways to answer the question why. One is because, and the other is so that. I'm saying in different terms that what uh, what uh, uh, Dennett says here. Um, because and so that they correspond with why in the sense of how come, what caused it. Um, because whatever, something in the past. And why in the sense of what for? How do we find meaning in it? So that, and the way uh, I've heard this uh, illustrated is that you imagine a conversation between uh, a mom and, and a four-year-old kid where the, the kid says, mommy, why does it rain? And the mom says, oh, because the clouds open up and the, the rain falls down. And the kid says, but why does it rain? And the mom says, oh, well, because of the hydrogen cycle. I'll draw you a detailed picture. The kid says, but why does it rain? And the mom stops and thinks and says, so that the grass and the trees and the fruits and vegetables can grow. And the four-year-old says, okay, why didn't you say so in the first place? So it illustrates that people mean two different things when they ask why. And I see that Richie has already picked up on the Lama and Madua. Uh, this is uh, this is a good a good point that uh, it's ref these two senses of why are reflected in Hebrew by two different words for why. Uh, in modern Hebrew, they're really uh, used uh, 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 the same, but as Naomi points out, in Hebrew, Lama is lema. Like that's not a a folk etymology, at least from what I've seen. No, that's actually why. Lama is from lima. For what? For what purpose? And uh, madua is what, what caused it. So why am I telling you this? Because if we go back to this uh, this this little you know uh, 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 banter uh, between the librarian and the rabbi, and uh, he says, you crushed my childhood dreams. And she says, I'm sure there are deeper spiritual reasons. Uh, that's, there's something to that, meaning he thought, or maybe his Gemara Rebbe meant this, that the reason, the reason what caused the, uh, how come, how come the, the Gemara starts with Daf Bed? Oh, it's teach us a nice spiritual message. But so, okay, so that, that's not, that's not how come. But it could be that it is what for. And this distinction is made by the last Lubavitcher Rebbe in sources three and four. By the way, you don't have to be a, a, a great scholar in order to notice that, in order to, to admit that the um, how come uh, answer, how come uh, the Gemara starts with Daf Bed is because the first page is Daf Alf. Here in source number two, somebody had asked the rabbi on Hidabru, which is a Haredi um, Kiruv uh, website, and the answer that they gave to the question was because page Daf Alf is the is the title page. Like that's it. Like you, you don't have to be you know trying to bust myths in order to come to this conclusion. Uh, but I like the way that, that Rabbi Schneerson uh, put it. Uh, I found it in, there was a write-up on one of the Chabad pages which referred to both of these sources. One of them, source number three, is a transcript of a conversation that the Lubavitcher Rebbe had 
in um, in the 1980s uh, with the the Gera Rebbe. Uh, and then source number four was when the Lubavitcher Rebbe gave a sicha himself, like to his regular sicha audiences back in uh, in 1957. He says it's two different ways of formulating the uh, the, the same idea, um, and that is let's look at it the way he formulates it uh, in in source number three, and then you can compare source number four afterwards. Um, the reason, the number numbering of the pages that we have was because in the first edition, through the uh, the first edition of what became the standard Gemara through the Christian publisher uh, Daniel Bomberg, that's the way he printed it. Um, and and the reason why he did it that way, that's the Tam HaPashut. That's the simple reason, or we could say the how come. And for whatever reason, he did it. Uh, so. Michelle Chesner said, because that's that's the way that all the printed books were, Jewish and non-Jewish at the time. The Babacher Rebbe came up with some, without knowing the history, came up with a couple of possibilities. Maybe because he they he uh, he included the uh, the the frontispiece as 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 a regular page number. Like in other words, that's that's historically correct. Or maybe he was being paid for every page. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. That's a Tam HaPashut. But the Obavitcher Rebbe says, all that explains is why the printer set it up that way. But that doesn't explain why all of our editions of the Gemara ever since have kept that. That, that's not, that has nothing to do with the original printer. There must be hashkacha pratit in that. There must be some kind of divine guidance Behind the way that 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 there's so many there were so many different a bunch of different editions of the Gemara, but one became the standard. It must be that every part of that standard edition teaches us an important lesson, uh, not because everything has to teach us an important lesson, but because it continued this way. Not because of the how come, but there's a what for. Because we have reason to ask, why did why did all the Gemaras after that uh, stick with this? In which case, it's not crazy to say why, in the sense of how come, how come the Gemara starts with with Daf Bet, and the answer is because of the printers. But you can still say the Gemara starts with Daf Bet, and in addition, it also teaches us an important lesson. Or it's a nice idea that as long as you don't pretend something that's, or as long as you don't fool yourself into something that's historically false, that, that it was set up that way. That's the how come that the printer had that in mind. printer did not have that in mind. That's okay. The, you could teach a Gemara class and convey whatever the lesson is that the, the way the Obavitcher Rebbe puts it is that there's uh, that you, you don't start from, uh, from learning from the beginning. There's no beginning of learning. That's the way that I heard it anyway. He says, just like Breshit starts, the very beginning of the Chumash starts with the letter Bet and not with the letter Aleph. So you see that um, that whatever whatever you want to fill in the, the blank here, the uh, he says there could be uh, other other possibilities, but that's not a problem as long as you say that's the why that's answering the question of why in the sense of what for, why in the sense of how come how come the Gemara starts with Dafet because that's the way they printed books back then, but why in the sense of how come? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Why in the sense of of what for? Oh, okay. Well, then let's uh, let's speculate, and that's okay. Um, so, uh, I thought that was an interesting way to, uh, 
bust the myth at the same time as saying you don't have to throw it out completely. Just put it, just present it in a way that is accurate. You don't have to pretend that that's what the printers uh, had in mind. So that, that's, a, that's a little bit more subtle than what we do in uh, most of this class, but uh, I thought it was uh, interesting and uh, thought-provoking. Okay, moving right along to an unlikely story. Hey, there's a custom of having dairy on Shavuot. Hey, how about that famous story about Ramosha Feinstein? When Ramosha Feinstein found out that he drank non-Chav Yisrael milk, he made himself throw up because he was so holy that he didn't want to have the non-Chav Yisrael milk in his digestive system. And even though that certainly is not the halacha, still, that, that's how holy he was. So uh, I've heard the story a bunch of times. Uh, so how do you know that's not true? How do you prove that something didn't happen? Because you were there when it didn't happen? No. You need to be able to, to be more specific. Like, remember a couple weeks ago we did with the Chavetz Chaim. How do you know that the Chavetz Chaim, did, that the story with the, on the train couldn't have happened that way? So Rav Moshe David Tendler, who is still alive uh, in, uh, in his 90s, uh, for many years was the, the, the uh, head of the biology department at Yeshiva College, as well as one of the Roshi Yeshiva uh, at, uh, at Reitz, and of course, Ramosha Feinstein's son-in-law. What is written up here, which you won't find on the internet because it predates the Jewish Action website, Jewish Action, the OU magazine from 1986, if I remember correctly, this is a write-up, and it actually sounds more oral than written, this is a write-up of what Rav Tendler said at the Leviah, at the funeral floor of Moshe, which I was at, uh, Tanit Esther, uh, 1986, very, very uh, crowded uh, on the Lower East Side. Uh, I didn't know until getting there, I went with uh, pe uh, some people from my school, uh, I didn't know until getting, get, getting there that all the Yogis would be in Yiddish. So it wasn't that useful for somebody like me who does not understand Yiddish at all, but Rav Tendler, to his credit, made a point of speaking in English. Uh, perhaps he knew that at least some of the people of the 100,000 or whoever would not have uh, under understood what he w wanted to say. So R Rav Tendler, this is not the entire article. If anybody wants, I can send you the, uh, uh, my copy, uh, whatever, on the computer of, of the entire article. But how do you summarize the life of the greatest rabbi of the generation? This is what Rav Tendler said, that his, his, Rav, Ten Rav, Rav Feinstein's greatest contributions were ignorance of the Torah, amaratsis, is an absolute evil, divisiveness within the Torah community is an absolute evil, and normalcy is an absolute good. And then he elaborated on, on, uh, on all three of them. I left out the first two for, uh, purposes of, uh, of space. And this is what he says about being normal. That uh, Rav Moshe, he was a normal, conventional husband, father, and grandfather. This may have been his most distinctive personality trait. He had no shtick and no like things that, oh, yes, that's his uh, eccentricity. All halachot, all Moser applied to him as to everybody else. And many, if not all, who have eulogized him in print have denied this normalcy by emphasizing his superhuman qualities or behavior patterns. You know, and that's uh, it's an accusative finger at those who fancy themselves leaders. Okay, that's Rav Tender's style. Um, but he gives a few examples. No, Rav Moshe did not complete Shas 100 or 200 times uh, or more. He did read the newspaper uh, daily, etc., etc., etc. And now getting to the point, it's not true that he once inadvertently drank non-Chav Yisrael milk and immediately forced himself to regurgitate. Rav Tenner says, I saw this fantasy in print in two eulogies, meaning that it come out after, uh, I guess, in between the 
the funeral and when, when he wrote this up. Nonsense. Normal people don't do such things. And then he says, besides his, uh, his halachic view that in the United States, all milk has this halachic status of Chav Yisrael because nobody milks camels or donkeys. That should have convinced everyone that this story is a fabrication. Yet mythology has a special place, even in the heart of a monotheistic Jew. Well, you can tell this really like bothers him. Um, so Tender's argument is that, how do you know that this never happened? Because making yourself throw up when it isn't a matter of life and death is not a normal thing to do. And everybody in his family knew that Rav Moshe didn't do abnormal things. Having said that, I thought it was interesting that uh, uh, 30 years later, more or less, uh, in, in the yeshivish online discussion group coffee room of the yeshiva world, people tried, uh, went back and forth, could the story have been true or not? And one or two people quoted uh, people who knew him. I, I'm a good, good friend of Rav Moshe's great-grandson. He said it's false. And Rav Nutta Greenblatt said in Memphis that Rav Mo- he saw Rav Moshe drank Chav Stam, and at least for the next six hours he didn't throw up. Okay, that, I guess that's a different way of disproving the story. Um, somebody else has a, a, a creative theory. Uh, this is the person calling himself Zahava's dad. I've heard many stories about Gedolim, great rabbis, where they gave a different reason for their action, different from the real reason, so as not to embarrass someone. So, for example, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky was not sure about someone's kashrut on Pesach, so he lied, which was a big deal because he didn't lie in general. He said he didn't eat kabrak so as not to embarrass that person. It's the equivalent of the, the rabbi saying, oh, I'm sorry, I can't eat, uh, uh, eat this because I'm a vegetarian. But really, the rabbi is not a vegetarian. He just doesn't trust the kashrut of their meat. Like that's, there's ample precedent for doing that sort of thing. So Zahava's dad theorizes maybe that someone gave Rav Moshe Feinstein spoiled milk to drink. And Rav Moshe didn't want to embarrass the person. So he lied and said, oh, oh, it's Chal of Stam. As, to explain why he threw up, as that would not be as bad as giving him spoiled milk. Okay, that's a, a clever, clever uh, points for, for creativity. Um, but uh, I like the, uh, the approach given here in also part of this discussion that I heard someone went over to Rav David Feinstein, one of Rav Moshe's sons, and said, I heard that Rav Moshe drank Chav Stam threw up. And Rav David replied, both stories are true. Rav Moshe drank Chav Stam and he threw up but not at the same time. Okay, so uh, that, that's a different way of, uh, of making sense of, uh, of not, not, not yelling at the, pe- the people who are uh, with good intentions spreading lies about, uh, about rabbis as if, as if it makes the rabbi a better person, a holier person than he made himself uh, throw up. Anyway, moving right along. Street Torah, where we... Uh, discuss a uh, an opinion which is out there, but people have only heard that opinion, but really, that's not the only opinion, and it's probably a minority opinion. If a safer Torah falls, everybody has to fast for 40 days. Not only the person who, for sure, the person who dropped it, and maybe everybody uh, who was there, maybe everybody in the shul. So uh, about once uh, I, uh, about once in every one of these classes I do uh Bits of an, parts of an article by Rabbi Ari Zivotofsky. Uh, and uh, he has one in his uh, column in, uh, in Jewish Action. What's the truth about fasting 40 days upon seeing a Torah scroll fall? And I 
uh, copied bits and pieces here. Here's the way he formulates it. The fact is, that's a misconception. The fact is there is a late post-Talmudic custom for a person who drops a Sefer Torah to fast. There is a, it is a custom, but it's the person who drops the Sefer Torah, and it's usually one day. And it certainly is not the halacha. The halacha, you find, in other words, where, what is, this is only, he goes on to say, this is only in the last few hundred years. Okay, so it is a thing. It became a thing, but you want to know the halacha? The halacha is if Rahman God forbid, somebody sees a Torah scroll burned deliberately, then one has to tear Kriya as if, as if they, they, they were there when somebody died. That's, uh, that's very serious. That's in the Gemara. And the Shach commentary in the Shulchan Aruch says, and we also have to tear Kriya if we see a Torah scroll being torn on purpose. Okay. And at some point after that, the custom evolved to for people to fast if either of these things happens. If a Torah scroll is burnt, if a Torah scroll uh, is torn. But not until the 1400s did anybody say if a Torah scroll or maybe even a pair of tefillin falls, then there's an idea of fasting. So it's the, uh, the Mari Bruna uh, in the 1400s, popularized by the Magan of Ram in the, uh, in the 1600s. And these are resources. Do not mention that anybody witnessing it would, would need to, uh, to fast. Over the next few hundred years, it, this became a more a recognized thing. Uh, we find some places where, where the rabbi imposes a three-day uh, Bahab fast. Bahab just means Monday, Thursday, Monday. Uh, but the Chida in the 1700s says every local rabbi should decide what is appropriate for his community. Because we're not talking about halacha here. The halacha is in the case of a Torah that Chas Shalom is burned. Uh, the halacha doesn't say anything if a, if a Torah scroll is dropped. So what is appropriate? The local rabbi should, uh, should determine it. And Rabbi Zevotovsky quotes, yet the opinion of fasting for 40 days does appear in one source, in Shal uh, of Rav Yosef Shal Nathanson in the 1800s. Yes, it appears somewhere. Okay, that's nice. But it's not the majority opinion, and it certainly is not the halacha. And then Rabbi Zevotovsky throws in something that I, I found uh, interesting near the end of, of his article. There are those who prefer alternatives to fasting so as not to burden or weaken people in general, meaning not talking about this case. Voluntarily fast. For, uh, that's, the, the, that's the Shulchan Aruch um, in uh, 571, which is not talking about um, uh, not talking about if something happens to a, to a Sefer Torah, but talking about fasting in general. To be honest, even though Rabbi, Rabbi Zivotovsky does not go into this, to be honest, if you just go through the Shulchan Aruch. There are cases and cases and cases about people choosing to fast. They're all over the place. If you just, you know, you, do, you don't know anything about Jewish communities, you just want to learn halacha from the Shulchan Aruch, you will conclude that Jews fast all the time. Or at least there's somebody out there who's fasting all the time. I'm not talking about uh, the rabbinic fasts. The five or so, whatever you know, that are that are required by uh, by rabbinic law. Um, talking about fasting on erev Rosh Hashanah, fasting uh, during a certain Yemei Tshuva, fasting uh, on, Yom, uh, on Yom Kippur Katan the day before 
uh, Rosh Chodesh, fasting on Monday, Thursday, and uh, and Monday after Pesach and after Sukkot. Oh, and while we're at it, how about Monday and Thursday during the weeks of Shovavim Tat, which stands for Shmod Vaera Bo B'Shalach Yitro Mishpatim Truma and Tetzaveh. I don't know anybody who fasts on any of these days. There are some people say Suichot, uh, a few people say Suichot um, uh, on some of these days, but the point is, Fasting, taking on a fast, used to be, during the time of the Shulchan Aruch and for hundreds of years beforehand, used to be the go-to way to do something extra, to take on something that you weren't doing otherwise. And we don't do that anymore. You want, you want to do something extra? Give extra tzedakah. Your rabbi might, might ask you to say more Tehillim or, or learn more Torah or, or accept on yourself to not say Lashon Hara, but accept on yourself fasting? We could discuss, you know, uh, we could speculate as to why why it doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. I don't have it here, but Rav Moshe Feinstein once gave this answer to a yeshiva student who, who, who asked him, I need to do tshuva, should I accept extra fast on himself? And he said, no, it'll ruin your Torah learning. You know, you should learn more Torah or what, what, I don't remember the exact formulation. The point is, maybe it worked for our ancestors who were probably very poor and probably not eating a whole lot anyway. And that was their goat. And they probably... Most of them probably weren't that learned, you know, uh, probably hadn't gone to yeshiva for long after age 13, if at all. Okay, so that's, everybody can fast, or at least everybody used to be able to just take on a fast. But it doesn't work for us. Even on the uh, obligatory fast days, most of us just get cranky and crabby. So as far as I know, there are no rabbis today who say, oh, yes, you want to do something extra? Take on a fast day. Okay, it just, of all the different extra things take on, this is not a thing for us. So I'm not saying it is totally made up to fast for a safer tar falling. It's not made up. It's a custom that developed, not 40 days, but one day, and possibly only the person who, who dropped it. It developed, but it developed during a time when taking on an extra fast was, that was a go-to Option that was something a way to do something extra. If you and and if you don't just look around and see Orthodox communities and how different different communities do things, but really most of us do things in, in this sense the same. It's not like my Orthodox people don't like uh, fasting, but Haredim take on fast all the time. No, we do, we don't do this anymore. Okay, we don't do this anymore. So if you get your halacha from the books, sooner or later you're going to end up clashing with uh, with what people do. I thought it was an interesting uh, example and reminder. If anybody wants more details on this topic, besides Rabbi Zivotovsky's article, which is online, there's also the article by uh, Rav Daniel Feldman, um, a different, more like Lumdus perspective and comparing the different opinions uh, on, the, on this topic, which appeared in tradition in uh, 1999. Okay, moving right along. Folk etymology. Hey, we've all heard the magic word abracadabra. But did you know that it's from Aramaic? Well, a lot of people seem to, to think so, despite the fact that there's not a shred of evidence that the people came up with abracadabra knew Aramaic at all. So, for example, let's say you're scrolling through the Harry Potter wiki, you know, as you do, looking for information on Avada Kedavra, the, uh, the killing curse. So you scroll down to the etymology part of this uh, uh, wiki page, and you see they quote J.K. Rowling, the creator of Harry Potter, and she said, 
in public. Does anyone know where Avadakadabra came from? It's an ancient spell in Aramaic. It's the original of Abracadabra. It means let the thing be destroyed. Uh, we'll come back to this because that does not make any sense if you know Aramaic. Originally, she goes on, originally is used to cure illness. And the thing was the, the illness, let the illness be destroyed. But I decided to make it the thing as in the person standing in front of me should be destroyed. It becomes a killing curse. I take a lot of liberties with things like that. I twist them around and make them mine. Okay, well, it is impressive that J.K. Rowling is very well read. She did not make up the idea that uh, abracadabra comes from Aramaic. But the people who do say things like that are not any more knowledgeable of Aramaic than J.K. Rowling is. By the way, the wiki people added that cadavra is probably also combining with the English word cadaver. Okay, very clever. Um, there is a blog, which we haven't seen yet in this course, but we'll probably see at least a couple more times by David Kerwin, uh, amateur uh, Jewish etymologist. Uh, the blog is called Balashon, which is a combination of two Hebrew words. Lashon, of course, language, and Balash, a detective. So uh, he doesn't, his entry on this is not that detailed, but I like the fact that he quote, he pulls together different theories that people have presented to explain how abracadabra is really from Aramaic. Okay, ready? Here we go. Very creative here. It's from avracadabra. I will create as I speak. That, that's what I heard anyway, uh, that's, which is actually the opposite of what J.K. Rowling heard. Avra kadabra, it will pass as I speak. No, avarcha adabra, I will bless, I will speak. That sounds like, like uh, I don't know, uh, um, uh, Anamiz Mirot. Adabra, chancha. Anyway, no, it's really habracha vidabra. Okay, now we're moving like way further away from anything. Anything that makes any sense at all. Well, it's, it's a bracha, and it's also dever, which is like disease. Oh, and this has got this net, last one has got to be made up by some. Christian Hebraicist. Oh, it's really for Av Ben and Ruch Kodesh. You know, because everything in Aramaic is from the uh, the Christian uh, Trinity. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, David Kerwin concludes. I'm inclined to follow to to follow Klein. Uh, Klein's comprehensive etymological dictionary of the Hebrew language for readers of English, which is now available in its entirety on Safaria. So if you next time you want to look up. Um, uh, a scholarly un, uh, etymology of a Hebrew word, go there. Anyway, here's what Klein says on abracadabra. It's late Latin from the Greek, in which word the letter C, which is our equivalent of S, was misread for K, um, meaning it should be a soft C, not a hard C. And it was originally written as a magical formula on abraxas stones, whence its name, abraxas stones, is, was this like Gnostic thing, Nothing to do with uh, with Aramaic. It's a Greek thing. If we had, if the early sources that mentioned abracadabra were Jews, or if they were written in Aramaic, okay, then we could speculate. But since there isn't any evidence for that, yeah, let, let's uh, let's see how every word can tie in to every language with some fill in the blank etymology in the middle, and then we, and we get ridiculous things like avracadabra, like that, that's. Like, where do you even begin to refute that? You know, yes, you'll find Bet Reish Aleph is um, is creating and and Dalit Bet Reish is speaking, but that's not how Aramaic is conjugated. Like, uh, it, 
The only people who come up with this are people who don't actually know that much Aramaic. Okay, so um, enough said about that. That's our uh, folk etymology for this session. And now let's move on to something historical. There are many, many uh, myths and legends about the Rambam. After all, he was a larger-than-life person with a major uh, influence both even while he was alive and certainly uh, after he died. I once saw a book of just like legends and stories about the, uh, the Rambam. A few of them are, are true, or at least a few of them can be confirmed, but the, uh, there's this article published in 1964 and still, as far as I could tell, the only thing written on the subject, like there's nothing else to say after this. You look up Maimonides or Rambam and Saladin and this is what you'll get. Bernard Lewis was the historian, the scholar of Islam, right? That was, you know, he was, uh, he was the final word on anything relating to, uh, uh, to Islam. And he wrote an article about basically two urban legends about the Rambam. We're just going to focus on, on one of them. Uh, the other one is that, that the Rambam was called to, to, to serve, like on a one-time basis, to serve Richard the Lionhearted. Uh, and he... Dr. Lewis spends most of the article explaining how that cannot be true. And he spends the last two pages, that's what we're going to look at now, parts of those two pages, the, the, uh, the legend that uh, the Rambam was the doctor of Saladin. Okay, so just, uh, just very briefly, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the story, just very, very briefly about, about Saladin, he was a very important uh, person, one of the certainly the most important uh, Muslim of uh, of his time. By the way, he's known in, in Hebrew uh, as Tzalach Adin. So there's a Tzadi at the beginning and and a, a Chet uh, in the middle because it's originally from from Arabic. So he was the first, just very briefly, he was the first Sultan of, of Egypt and Syria. He was the founder of the Ayyubid dynasty. And for those of us living in Israel, uh, in eight in 1187, he defeated the Crusaders. And he took control from them of the land of Israel and the city of Yerushalayim. So he's, as far as that goes, that, that's his main importance in, uh, in Jewish history. He was the, uh, as we said, he was the sultan in Egypt. So didn't the Rambam serve like the, the important, you know, the, the head of Egypt? No. It turns out, it's not totally made up. The Rambam did serve one or two of the important people in Egypt, but not Saladin. Okay, so Dr. Lewis says, uh, ma- the Rambam did serve as physician to, sorry for not pronouncing this right, Al-Qadi Al-Fadil, okay, who was his friend and patron, and who enjoyed great power as the chief minister of Saladin. Like, that's, that's pretty high up, okay? And the Rambam was court physician to the successor, of so the Rambam was, was later in his life, the doctor for the head of Egypt. But just because that's true, it does not mean the head of Egypt had to be the only head of Egypt that I've ever heard of. So it must be Saladin. So it must be that, you know, all the famous people uh, met each other. No. So how do you know that that's not true? So Dr. Lewis uh, goes through this. Neither the Rambam nor any other early source alludes to service with Salah Adin. And it's difficult to believe that so distinguished a patient, so distinguished a patient would have escaped mention either by the Rambam, who is not averse to speaking of his professional successes, or by his admirers, meaning nobody at the Rambam's time 
ever said that the Rambam was the uh, the doctor to Tzavah uh, Hadin. The first, so this this claim came later, and it was doubted as uh, as early in Jewish history, Jewish historians as Gratz in the the eighteen hundreds, who point out that it's contradicted by the Rambam's letter to Ibn Aknin, which was written after years after Saladin left Egypt. And Rambam writes about how he's very he's serving great people. I must tell you, the Rambam writes, this was originally in Arabic, not in English, in case you're wondering, that in the practice of medicine, I have achieved much fame among the great, such as the chief judge, the emirs, the house of Al-Fadil, the one we mentioned before, and other great ones of the city. And the Rambam left out Salah Adin, so presumably, you know, he was not uh, on, on the list. And then Dr. Lewis goes, uh, goes into some details as to, as to when this letter was, um, and he concludes that the Rambam's appointment to... Um, the head of Egypt must have taken place after Saladin's final departure from Egypt in 1182 and probably after his death in, uh, in, in 1193. So in other words, the Rambam, who died in 1204, may, you know, he, it seems that he did serve, he was a doctor to the head of Egypt, which is pretty impressive, but that was only the, the, uh, the successor to Salah uh, Hadin. Uh, and Dr. Lewis concludes his article this way, and this is a very myth-busting thing. That Rambam ever served Salahadin serves a rest on a single unsupported statement, almost certainly untrue. The subsequent popularity of the story is an interesting confirmation of the words of the great American prophet Robert Fo- poet, excuse me, poet Robert Frost. A theory, if you hold it hard enough and long enough, gets rated as a creed. And that, of course, ties into a lot of things that uh, that we we say in uh, in this course. Oh, I just realized that I forgot to mention something about uh, uh, the Sefer Torah. Uh, uh, Perry Zamek uh, uh, wrote me today uh, that uh, on this topic that uh, he knows a true story about uh, what happens if a Sefer Torah falls. Uh, one, of, one of his friends asked a rabbi, Rabbi so-and-so, what do you have to do if you drop a Sefer Torah? And the rabbi responded instantly, you pick it up. Uh, okay, so that's, uh, that's a different way of, uh, of responding to, to this. So I thought I'd... Uh, uh, throw that in. So thank you to um, Perry Zomik for that. Moving right along to the misunderstood text. Since we have a Yom Tov coming up, and uh, some people like to eat dairy on Shavuot, and some people feel very torn be- in eating dairy on Shavuot because they feel that you isn't there an obligation to eat meat on Yom Tov and Shavuot is uh, is a Yom Tov? So maybe we should have like dairy before the meat and like clear the table and complicated stuff like that. So this, by the way, could also fit into street Torah because there is an opinion that you have to eat meat on Yom Tov, but it's not in the Shulchan Aruch. It's not the Halacha. If you're a Yemenite and you follow the Rambam for all Halachic purposes, well, then I guess you're eating meat on Yom Tov because the Rambam does say you have to eat meat on Yom Tov, but it's not the Shulchan Aruch and it's not the simple understanding of the Gemara. Let's look at that Gemara right now. I'll just paraphrase this, that... um, People often quote this as saying, how can you not eat meat on Yom Tov? Doesn't it say in the Gemara, this is our misunderstood text, doesn't it say in the Gemara, Ein simcha ela bebasar v'yayin. There's no simcha, there's no joy except for meat and wine. That is a misquote of the Gemara. Let's look at the Gemara right now. The rabbis taught, uh, a uh, a man, Jewish man, is obligated to cause his children and family members to be happy on the uh, on the Chag Pesach Shavuot and Sukkot, as it says in um, 
in 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 Parsha Re'e, v'samachta bechagecha, you should be happy on the uh, on the holiday. Bamem v'samacham, how do you make them happy? Biyayin with wine. Everybody drinks wine on Yom Tov. That's the Tanakama. That's the first opinion. Wine. That's it. Simchas through wine. Rabbi Yehuda Omer. Rabbi Yehuda disagrees with Tanakama, and he says, No, 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 no. On a, yeah, I agree with wine, but only for some people. Anashim baroy lahem, v'nashim baroy lahem. Men and women each has to do has to consume, or rather, do something. I shouldn't say consume. Has to do something on Yom Tov that makes them happy. And I'll tell you what makes men and women happy. At least uh, people whom he knew. Anashim baroy lahem biyayin. How do men become happy by drinking wine? Benashim b'may, and uh, how about women? And it sounds like he didn't answer that question, so somebody else answered that question. Within this opinion that men and women, uh, depending on your gender, that's how you you enjoy Yom Tov uh, uh, differently. Tanya Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef said, Bebavel, uh, in Babylonia, where most of the Jews lived at the time of the Gemara, the big day tzivonim. Women should wear and presumably should buy beforehand color, colorful clothes. That's how women enjoy the festival. How did he know? I don't know. Maybe he did a poll. Maybe his wife did a poll. We don't ask these questions. But Eretz Israel, but he said in the land of Israel, that's not what makes women happy. What makes women happy is the big day pishtan meguhatsin, that the women wear freshly ironed linen clothes. In both cases, it's wearing clothes, not eating. Okay, that, that's, the, uh, that's Rav Yosef explaining Rav Yehuda. Tanya, it was taught in a Brita. We're now moving on to another opinion, which may or may not overlap with what we just saw. Rav Yehuda ben Batera Omer, a new opinion. Rav Yehuda, the son of Batera, says, we're getting to the part that people misquote, Bizman Shabbat HaMikdash Kayam, during the time of the temple, Ein Simcha El Bebasar. The only Simcha was with meat, eating meat. Shanamar, as it says, in not the pasuk that we quoted before, but a later pasuk in Parsha Kitavo, you should bring slaughter and bring carbon shlamim on the the three uh, ha- uh, festivals, and eat it there in Yerushalayim, and be happy in front of God. In other words, what is simcha on the chag? Eating the meat of the carbon shlamim. So Ein Simcha El Bebasar is short for Besar Shlamim. During the time of the temple, the way to fulfill the mitzvah of Simcha on the Chag is through eating Karim Shlamim, as it says in the Torah. But he goes on to say, Vachshav, but now that we don't have a temple anymore, this is still the same rabbi. She'en Ben HaMikdash Kayam, it isn't around, the temple. Ein Simcha El Nowadays, forget me, simple understanding, the only joy in Yom Tov is through wine. Used to be meat only, and now it's specifically the meat of the carbon, and now it's wine only. Shanamar, as it says, and to him, uh, drinking wine makes people happy. That's it. That's the end of the relevant part of the Gemara. So people say, doesn't it say in the Gemara, uh, no, actually, there is no such opinion. That's a that's somebody who's heard and and they take it totally out of context. There is no Gemara that says about today Ein Simcha El at all. Now you could argue that maybe we don't necessarily follow Rabbi Yehuda Ben Betera. Maybe we should follow an early opinion. What are the early opinions? Wine, or maybe wine for men and clothing for women. But the meat, 
Meat is not mentioned here. So the simple understanding of the Gemara is, it's not that you can't eat meat on Yom Tov, but the obligation of Simcha, it's one of the mitzvot in the Torah, how do you fulfill the, the, uh, the obligation of Simcha on Yom Tov? Wine. That would seem to be a pretty open and shut uh, case from the Gemara. And I, in the, because of limited space, I left out the Shulchan Aruch, but if you look in the Shulchan Aruch on uh, Orachayim Tafkuf Chavtet, he says, when you eat on Yom Tov, don't eat too much meat and wine because you have to put in perspective and, and make sure to invite the poor, etc. At no point does he say you have to eat meat. He also doesn't say uh, that you have to eat wine, drink, eat wine, that you have to drink wine. Basically, it's enjoy yourself on, on Yom Tov. It sounds like from the Shulchan Aruch that it's a subjective thing. That's the halacha. Assuming that you're following uh, the Shulchan Aruch on this. This is not something where the later commentaries uh, argue with the Shulchan Aruch. The Rambam, he does, he says something that's a little bit surprising. But he says, he quotes in, here in source number two, he said, he quotes Vesamach Bechagecha, then he says, even though I admit that the Simcha that's described in the Pasuk uh, on, uh, in, in Kitavo is the Karban Shlamim. Yesh bichlal ota simcha, included in that joy, is lismach hu ubanavu b'nei beito, koachad v'echad karoilo. That mitzvah, which applied to karban shlamim, is a more generic mitzvah, and it includes eating or enjoying yourself on Yom Tov, in however you enjoy yourself, which opens the door to the possibility of saying, if you enjoy meat, then maybe you should have that on Yom Tov. But the Rambam is, is expanding this, meaning he's saying it's not that this mitzvah doesn't apply, it's that Karban Shlamim was a classic example of it, or the, the, the main way of fulfilling it during the time of the Beit HaMikdash. And he goes on to say that children, you should give them uh, candy or whatever passed for candy at the time of the, uh, of the Gemara. And women should, uh, should buy uh, 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 clothes and, and jewelry, and men, meat and wine. She'en simcha el basar, ve'en simcha el Look at that. That's uh, very eye-opening. It, it's true the Ramam doesn't say it the way that people misquote the Gemara. He doesn't say, e'en simcha el basar ve'ayin. But he does say that both these things are, are, are applied to us today. And it seems to go against the Gemara. And you know who asks this? Rav Yosef Karo in the Beit Yosef commentary on the tour. He says, I don't understand the Rambam. Why does it uh, just based on the Gemara? It sounds like from the Gemara that the uh, the Ein Simchal Bebasar was only in the time of the Beit Hamikdash. So how come the Rambam applies it today? The Rambam does apply it today. If you if you meet people, say I heard you have to eat meat on Yom Tov. They're not making it up. They're quoting the Rambam. But then you say, well, you could follow the Rambam, but I'm going to follow the Shulchan Aruch. And the, based on the Shulchan Aruch, you should eat what you enjoy. Somebody who enjoys meat, sure, and eat meat. But somebody who doesn't enjoy meat should not eat meat. The question that a bunch of the later commentaries uh, discuss is uh, basically, how do you answer the Beit Yosef's question? Like, the Rambam knew this Gemara, and this is not one of these examples where it turns out that there is a different text of the Gemara. So just, just briefly, the, the Torah Tamima um, on, uh, on the first uh, quote, on the, uh, the, the one from, from Re'e, he tries to justify uh, the Rambam, and it's here in source, source number four. And he suggests that the Rambam would understand the Gemara to mean is not literally the only joy is, but rather the main joy. 
at the time of the Beit HaMikdash, the main joy was uh, on Yom Tov was eating the meat of the Karban Shlomim, but even then, there were other ways to fulfill the mitzvah. For whatever reason, you couldn't eat the Karban Shlomim. Now that, that we don't have Karban Shlomim anymore, now the main uh, way to fulfill uh, uh, Simcha on Yom Tov cannot be Karban Shlomim, but it can still be meat in the sense that, as the Peretz Mimas points out, for people who enjoy meat and meat puts them in a good mood. That's still true. That hasn't stopped just because we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. So if, you, in other words, in the same way that the Gemara speaks about the value of, of wine, wine is connected to Simcha because it makes you happy. For many people, eating meat makes them happy. I'm not going to get personal here. Uh, many of you know that I, I personally do not eat meat, but I have to be honest, the Rambam seems very, uh, very emphatic about the obligation to, uh, to eat meat. The question is, what would the Rambam say if you say, if you said to him, but I don't like it, but it doesn't make me happy? That's not clear to me because the Rambam, on the one hand, he, he speaks about, just in these two paragraphs, he speaks about everybody, everybody should enjoy Yom Tov the way that, that, they, that they like it. And then he goes on to say, oh, children, women, and, and men. Is he trying to say that children are the same in all times and places? Women are the same in all times and places? So presumably, these examples where with the clothing, what if a woman doesn't enjoy uh, uh, wearing, uh, wearing nice clothes? What if she enjoys wine more than clothing? So you're going to say, no, no, it says right here in the Gemara that women enjoy clothes more. Presumably, that's not, it's not in that category, meaning there are many mitzvot where the parameters of the mitzvot are objective. Everybody has the same obligation. But it would seem that this is not in that category, for sure, according to the Shulchan Aruch, and possibly even according to the Rambam. In other words, the Rambam starting with the assumption that men enjoy eating meat and drinking wine, and that is still true for many men. But if the Rambam doesn't address, how about the person who doesn't fit that? What if they don't enjoy it? In other words, even within the Rambam, it's possible that there's some room for leeway. P.S., if you're fulfilling the Rambam, as the, the Taratimiyama points out, Eating chicken is not going to do it because meat, as in red meat, that's what the Rambam clearly means in context, the way that it's discussed in, uh, to be like the carbon shawami. Like, just because rabbinically uh, chicken counts as meat for uh, rabbinic kashrut does not mean that it counts as meat for all purposes. So if you think that you're fulfilling the Rambam by eating chicken on, uh, on Yom Tov, well, let's just say that... Uh, um, that you're only fooling yourself. Having said that, I want to wrap up this, uh, uh, this discussion by pointing out that the Shulchan Aruch Harav, the um, Rav Shneir Zalman of Liadi, who founded the, uh, the Chabad movement, and of course wrote the book uh, Tanya, in his halachic work, which it just says Shulchan Aruch on it, but we usually call it the Shulchan Aruch Harav, uh, he supports the Shulchan Aruch over, uh, over the Rambam, and he formulates it as that it's not an either-or, meaning like an in-between position. He says, meat, eating meat on Yom Tov is not a chovah. It's not an obligation. It was a chovah during the time of Beit HaMikdash. It's not a chovah anymore, but mitzvah yesh. There's still a fulfillment, meaning if this is something that you enjoy eating, you are doing a, a mitzvah by, by, by eating it on, uh, on Yom Tov. But that's, that's a subjective thing. So I, I, I think that the Shulchan Aruch Harav, uh, gives a very reasonable way to understand the Gemara. I'm not convinced that 
it would fit into the Rambam. He's not trying to fit into the Rambam, but uh, it certainly does seem to be a simple, a reasonable interpretation of the of the Gemara. Meaning, if you want to say that Enzim Chalbayin means there's no mitzvah at all of eating meat anymore, no, you could say there's no obligation to eat meat. But if you enjoy it, then by all means, you uh, uh, you should eat it. Point is, Simchat Yom Tov is, as is formulated here, uh, and then with we'll, this is the last source we'll do of this topic. Then we'll go on to with the last page. The Shagat Aryeh, um, in uh, in uh, in his discussion of Simchat Yom Tov, he says. The mitzvah of simcha is a b'chomine simcha. Um, that is, you should enjoy yourself on Yom Tov in ways that you enjoy and that are halachically permissible. Uh, but when there's a possible, when there's a beta mikdash, an opportunity to bring carbon shlamim, then there's also an obligation to enjoy yourself in a way that is the objective simcha. As he's reading it as during the time of the The meat of the carbon shlamim. Now that we don't have the Beit Hamikdash, the mitzvah of simcha is subjective. Ein simcha el does not mean you have to drink wine. It means if you enjoy wine, then sure, enjoy wine. If you enjoy meat, then meat. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing. And it's so unusual to find a mitzvah that is understood by the postgame as subjective that uh, it's it's good to know about this. Others apply this to. Uh, uh, Shabbat as well, but Shabbat is technically different because that's Oneg as opposed to uh, Simcha. Anyway, last topic. Stranger than fiction. The spread of Tikkun Well Shavuot. Learning all night on Shavuot is historically associated with the spread of coffee. So this is not a like smoking gun. Uh, it's not that we know for sure it didn't exist, that, that nobody ever stayed up all night on Shavuot uh, before coffee. No, but it's spread. This is uh, what I have here is is a, a paraphrase, like a popular uh, summary of the topic by one of my teachers uh, at the Azrieli Graduate School um, of Jewish Education at Yeshiva University, Dr. Moshe Sokolov. He summarizes the main article on the subject, uh, which I'm actually holding here, um, but it's 30 pages, so we only have one. Um, coffee. He mentions it uh, at the bottom of the page. Uh, Coffee, coffee, coffee houses, and the nocturnal rituals of early modern Jewry that appeared in the AJS Review uh, Association of Judaic Studies in 1989 by Professor Elliot Horowitz. And this is this is a famous article because nobody ever thought of this before. And he connects the dots, and after you read it, you're like, oh, okay, I see that. Uh, like he even thought of tracing the history of coffee which is a general history topic, and correlating it to a Jewish history topic, which is, it's great if you could do that. And there are so few examples of that that it's pretty impressive. So that was 1989, and, and uh, right uh, not long before this article was written, a book came out, and I think it was in 2012, uh, Robert uh, Liberalist, I don't, know, I don't know how the pronunciation is, an entire book called Jews Welcome Coffee, which is, not about that topic per se, it's about uh, Jews in Germany during the 18th century. Okay, that's a little bit more specific as opposed to Dr. Horowitz's article, which is about uh, Jews in different parts of Europe in the, um, in the 16th century. But just to, uh, to pull it together, um, the idea of staying up, I'm just gonna summarize here. You could read the, uh, uh, the, the article uh, on, on your own. 
uh, to just summarize uh, the the idea of staying up all night as a pious thing, which we associate is very common these days, associated with Shavuot. It was at different times and places done on the night of Hoshana Rabbah. And there's also this Tikkun Chatzot idea of Kabbalists not uh, staying up all night, but going to sleep at a normal time, you know, six, and waking up early at midnight, you know, having slept for six hours, presumably, and then staying up the rest of the night and, and mourning the Beit HaMikdash. It's called Tikkun Chatzot. So the idea of staying up uh, all night on Shavuot, that... That didn't start with coffee, but it was first done. The first record that we have of it is in 1530, 1530-something, done by two people, uh, one who's known by, well, two people who are known by different things they wrote. Uh, Roshul Mahalevi Alkabetz, who wrote L'cha Dodi, and his brother-in-law, Rav Yosef Karo, who wrote the Beit Yosef. Oh, yeah, and the Shulchan Aruch. So the two of them stayed up all night on Shavuot, uh, but they didn't start a trend. It's not that, and ever since 1530-something, it's become a thing to stay up all night. No. Rather, coffee was basically discovered uh, in the uh, 15th century. It started spreading through the Middle East and then Europe in the mid-16th century. The Shulchan Aruch doesn't mention coffee, but other people who are contemporaries of Rav Karo are already mentioning it. Wow, there's this like this this new uh, this new drink. You know uh, what's up with that? And all halachic discussions. Can you make it on? Uh, uh, can can you can you pour the water on the beans on Shabbat? What if uh, what if a non-Jew makes coffee for you? Like all sorts of uh, fascinating halachic topics. A number of years ago, I gave a shir on a night of Shavuot called. The laws of uh, the halachot of coffee. Uh, there's a lot to discuss there, but the point is that we know how coffee spread. Uh, we know uh, from one country to the next. Dr. Horowitz uh, tied that in, he correlated it with the gradual rise through the 16th and 17th centuries, spot, the land of Israel, North Africa, and Southern Europe of Tikkun Chatzot. So lo and behold, as one uh, as one spread, the other one spread as well. And it, it's it's reasonable. It's a lot easier to stay up all night if you have some kind of stimulant to uh, uh, to keep you uh, to keep you going. But uh, I've heard very mixed reports. I've heard different rea- responses of people to this uh, uh, this this association. Some people are like, "No, what is this like a joke?" Um, no, it's actually not a joke. Uh, halacha is uh, is kept in the real world, and if you're talking about something that started as a a pious thing, as a kabbalistic thing, why should it have spread uh, to those of us who are not pious kabbalists? And the answer is, well, you know, you've got this. You can combine this pious thing, or in the case of Shavuot, this like learning Torah thing, preparing for the Shavuot morning. And at the same time, you could get this cool new drug. Well, at the time, anyway, it was a cool new drug of, uh, of coffee. Now it's not so new, but uh, it still uh, makes a big difference for a lot of people uh, to, uh, to be able to, uh, to get through, uh, through the night. It's not so uh, – once you know that connection, you're like, oh, okay, how come nobody thought about this beforehand? Um, well, that's the, uh, the creativity of, uh, of Dr. Horowitz. Uh, and that's uh, that's our stranger than fiction for this uh, for this class.
So our time is up. I'm going to um, go through the uh, the chat as soon as I uh, uh, end the recording. Thanks to everybody for uh, for joining us, and uh, uh, see you next week.